Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. I'm going to use a couple of scriptures today and uh, talk about the language of the cross. But let's begin with uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 18-21. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever. I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. There is a theme in scripture that Paul is summing up and that the New Testament sums up around the word of the cross, around the the word of Christ, and that is that there are two kinds of language. So here in Corinthians we have the wisdom of the world, the so-called wisdom of the wise, and you know the cross is seen as foolishness in comparison. And the picture of course is God has made foolish the wisdom of the world. And a, a very similar idea is found in John chapter 8. I'll just read a short portion of this, but we'll compare the two passages in uh, verses 43 to 45 of John 8. Jesus is in this conversation with a group of Jews who, by the way, they begin, it says they believed in Jesus, but by the end of the conversation, they're ready to kill Jesus. So he's going to say some things in this conversation that just makes them murderously angry. Verse 43 to 45, why do you not understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You can't understand the language that I'm using. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. And so here we have an even sharper contrast. And I think this is true to the New Testament, that in several places there is posed this idea that sin and salvation amount to two alternative roles for language. You know, in one understanding, there's the wisdom of the world. Or there's the understanding that in Jesus' depiction, the lie, the lying language of Satan. And then there is the wisdom of God, or the word of truth. Jesus says, you don't understand me. You can't hear my word. Your native language is grounded in a lie, and the father of lies. I studied linguistics among other things and what we've learned about language is that there is a deep grammar that all language seems to come from 
a singular grammar. And if we would put this in biblical terms, maybe there's two deep grammars. There's two origins for the language that is being described. One deep grammar is grounded in violence and death. Jesus says of Satan, he was a murderer from the beginning and you are now seeking to kill me. That is, they're following their father, the devil. The other is grounded in truth and life. And according to these two meta-narratives, you know, large stories which make up scripture, we could say that there's two orders of meaning. In this particular conversation, Jesus points to the cross as definitive. Look up at verse 28. Jesus said, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And I do nothing on my own initiative, but I seek these things as the Father has taught me. Both in Corinthians and in this passage, the point in which people recognize the person of Christ is at the cross, in which these two languages, these two modes of wisdom, these two understandings of the world divide are at the cross. In family terms, there are two streams of meaning, two heads or fathers of language. You know, there's God and the devil. And Jesus refers to the devil as a liar, a murderer from the beginning. And of course, I think what he's referring to is Genesis, where the serpent there poses the original deception and introduces death that they die, Adam and Eve, but death in the sense that Cain kills Abel and that violence becomes very much part of the human race. Look at verse 39 to 41 in chapter 8. Jesus says, well, the devil's your father. They said, no, Abraham's our father. And he says, but if you're Abraham's children, well, then why don't you do the deeds of Abraham? But as, as it is, you're seeking to kill me, a man who told you the truth. You are doing the deeds of your father. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you're violent, if you're murderous, if you do not listen to my word, you can't hear my word, then you can't follow me. I don't know if you've ever experienced I spent 20 years in Japan, and believe me, there were many days when and I couldn't hear the words. <laughs> I couldn't understand what was taking place. There was a kind of incomprehension. And I think that's what Jesus is describing. These people are hearing, they actually do understand the words that he's speaking, but they can't comprehend him. And then they attack him. They say, we were not born of fornication. But we have one Father, God. I think they're referring to Jesus' birth here. They're accusing him, you know, of being an illegitimate child. And so they would violently defend their faith. And in their violence, they betray what their true nature of their faith is. They say, well, we do the deeds of Abraham. But of course, Jesus is saying, no, you're doing the deeds of your father, the devil. Faith and works go together in Jesus' picture. The Jews answered and said, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? They're saying, Oh, you must be demon-possessed. And Jesus says, If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That is, here's a death-dealing word and here's a word that gives life. And then the Jews say, Well, we know you have a demon. 
Because Abraham died. And the prophets died. How can you say if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death? And of course the idea is that the word of Christ is life-giving. It's serving as an absolute, whereas their word is death-dealing. And death is the absolute. And then Jesus says the thing that is going to really get them riled up. Your father Abraham rejoiced, in 56, to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, well, wait a minute, you're not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. And then they picked up stones to kill him. And of course, this is a claim to deity. Jesus in saying, I am before Abraham was, he's claiming the ego a me, the tetragrammaton. He's claiming the name of God. In this short conversation, he's defying all sequence. He's saying, I am before Abraham was. He's denying cause and effect before and after. He is, we might say, supertemporal. That's what he's claiming. I am before Abraham. He's superspatial. That is, time and space don't hold him down. He is the one who is incarnate. They see him now, and yet he says he precedes Abraham. And Abraham, of course, has already died. He's in the ancient past. And so Jesus' claim to divinity, here the ego a me, I am before Abraham, at the burning bush when Moses asked the name of God, God says, ego a me, I am, that I am. And that's what Jesus is claiming. And so the normal sequence, cause and effect, normal rationality, normal wisdom are undone here. I think that compared to the biblical writers, our understanding may be fairly stilted. Our tendency would be to say, well, what he really means here is before Abraham, I was. In other words, we want to iron it out a little bit. And it's no minor point. Jesus is really staking his claims on this understanding, and they're going to kill him because of this understanding. The ego a me, the I am, it's a clear reference here, first of all, to deity. But part of this is that, well, he's claiming that time and space and history then don't hold him in the way that they hold other people. In other words, we might say, well, maybe he didn't speak Greek. But of course, in another sense, it is a language problem. That's what Jesus is saying. You don't speak my language. You don't understand the language that I'm using. You speak another language. And Jesus says he is the truth and speaks the truth. And you speak lies and your native language is lying. It's your deep grammar of your language is a lie. And they're confronted then with something that is incomprehensible. And the entire conversation revolves around the power of language. Jesus says those who continue in or do the word of him will know the truth. This is verse 8, 31 to 32. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free. And of course they're bound. And he sees that his new friends very quickly that they would kill him. He says, you will kill me because my word has no place in you. 
And so their native language, their native attitude would do violence to him. If they spoke the same language, he's saying, that you would be cured. If you understood me, my words are healing. My words are life-giving. But you've been weaned on the language of your father. In verse 38, you do the things which you've heard from your father. You know, actually, that's the way we learn language. We imitate it. Well, they've imitated the wrong father. And I presume we're not really talking about Greek or Hebrew or English, but we're referring to something deeper than all of these. We're referring to law, to logos, to life and death, where language is determinative of sin and salvation. What I'm saying is maybe we should just take this conversation at face value and resist the tendency to chalk it up to hyperbole or a particular problem. Oh, you know, it's those Jews. Isn't the consistent focus of Scripture precisely concerned with language and the ground of language? You know, think of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Think of the Tower of Babel. Think of the law or the letter of the law. And John actually contextualizes all of sin. You know, that's the way the book of John begins. In the beginning was the language, the logos, the word. He's describing Jesus as an alternative form of speech. And the Jewish attachment to Abraham, the law, the tradition, in other words, it's a wrong attachment. It's not simply a Jewish problem, but it's the human problem. You know, my father, my family, my tradition, my tribe, my nation. We imagine that this provides a full access to God. We have the ontological argument, the university of being, you know, that we all dwell in the house of English. And we imagine that we share then this kind of form of understanding the wisdom of the world that gives us access to God. But of course, this is precisely the Antichrist. I presume we should resist, that is, reading ourselves out of the story. That is, if we're going to find ourselves in the story, I think we need to resist pointing to these Jews as someone other than a kind of universal representative. Because there seem to be two universal possibilities. Either you comprehend the word of life, you comprehend the I am before Abraham, or you're uncomprehending of this reading, this understanding of God, or this use of language. Jesus says either you understand and you have life, or you don't understand, and you don't speak the language that I'm using. Which is to say that comprehension is central. Maybe we, you know, remember in the Old Testament, the shibboleth, that that was the word that the, they could not say that word. Maybe the Logos is the shibboleth that divides good and evil, life and death, God and the devil. The I am before all else, it seems to be a key part of the discussion. You know, these Jewish questioners of Jesus, they inhabit a particular reason in which the I am statement, it gets them so riled up. This is a kind of impossible leap for them. They even say it's demonically inspired. They say, we know you have a demon. And their notion, of course, is grounded in the grave, the lie of their father. Death reigns. Abraham died. That's a fact. 
life and the natural sequence of aging and dying is the controlling factor. Their death-dealing logic is bound by the sequence and limitations of the grave. And at the same time, their ultimate argument is, we'll kill Jesus and reduce him to the limits of our understanding. I believe in this discussion we see why Jesus died. He's a kind of blasphemous in their view of things. He stands over and against their understanding. And we may imagine that we stand on the side of belief in this discussion. But look how Jesus' logic works. Jesus is not bound by time, by history, by death, by normal spatial bonds. And this is all part of his place as the ground of truth over and against the language of the liars. The ego me, this is kind of a shocking part of John. It's there, you know, at the very beginning. I am the light of the world. This is in the Logos, the prologue of John. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. He ties the ego me to power over nature. Remember when he's walking on the water? And the waves come and they, he says, be not afraid, ego a me. It is I, be not afraid. It seems like he's using the word right there. And there is this, this image in the Old Testament, in Job and Psalms of God stomping on the waves, walking on the water. And Jesus is literally doing that. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, ego a me which refers to, you know, there are many texts which refer to Yahweh as the good shepherd. And Jesus says, I'm the good shepherd. He uses the ego me, the I am, several times here in John. In 8.12, he says, I am the light, which of course connects us back to the Logos. I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The light of the world, the Logos, is one grounding form of language against all other forms of language. You know, we know now what light does. Light exceeds the bonds of time and space. Here is the determination of time and space. In verse 18 he says, Ego me, I am he who testifies about myself. And the Father sent me. He testifies about me. In verse 24, he says, I said to you that you will die in your sins, and yet lest you believe, ego a me. I am he. In verse 28, he says, When you lift up the Son of Man, you will know that ego a me. I am he. In verse 58, this is the, the clincher, of course. They, they cannot mistake this one. Before Abraham was born, Ego a me. And by the way, this isn't the final ego a me. You remember when they come to arrest Jesus and they go to arrest the disciples and Jesus says, I am he, ego a me. Just the way that he says it, apparently. They drew back and fell to the ground. I believe if we miss the power of this word, this logos, our tendency may be to flatten it out according to human time and space and history. Jesus' work of redemption precedes Abraham. It precedes the work of creation. This is the way that Paul talks in Romans 5. He pictures the first Adam as being preceded by and pointing toward the image of Christ. 
Irenaeus explains, for inasmuch as he had a pre-existence as a saving being, it was necessary that what might be saved should be also called into existence in order that the being who saves should not exist in vain. Did you get what Irenaeus is saying? He's saying the salvation comes before the need for salvation. The second Adam comes before the first Adam. Redemption precedes creation. And I think that's what Paul, you know, that's Irenaeus is talking about Romans 5 here. The second Adam precedes the first Adam. The saving work of Christ is the telos, the goal of Adam. Irenaeus goes on to explain that the end is already in the beginning, maintaining that it is he who summed up in himself all nations dispersed from Adam downwards and all languages and generations of men together with Adam himself. Much as the I am statement of John, the one who was to come, the second Adam of Romans 5, exists before the first Adam. It is not that Adam fell and then God put into effect, you know, oh, whoops, you know, kind of plan A, plan B kind of understanding. But Christ's saving work in Irenaeus's explanation precedes those he is saving. We're doing a little mind bending, but this is what Jesus is doing in chapter 8 of John in Romans 5. As Cyril of Alexandria explains, there is no division in the subject of Christ before and after the incarnation. Rather, one is the Son, one Lord, Jesus Christ, both before the incarnation and after the incarnation. The word of the cross is the word of the gospel, is the pre-incarnate word, is the logos, is the light of the world. The incarnate Jesus is the pre-existent Christ. And even the life of Christ is ordered or reordered, not from his birth, but from the cross. This is Cyril and Hippolytus. They both describe a putting on of flesh, not as having been inaugurated at Jesus' conception or birth, but they pictured that Jesus is generated backward in time having been woven from the sufferings of the cross. This is actually Revelation 12. Revelation 12 pictures all of human history as involving one drama, the drama of the birth of the Messiah and the dragon or the beast who is trying to consume the Messiah. In the picture, it's the woman giving birth. And of course, this woman is the church itself. Again, where are we? Well, we are giving birth to Christ in this picture. That is, we are the ones who are making Christ incarnate, bearing her child. Hippolytus describes, he pictures the weaving of the incarnate flesh of Christ as the unceasing function of the church. Quote, bearing from her heart the word that is persecuted by the unbelieving in the world. The word of the cross is creation's completion, the church teaches. That is, the beginning and the end are fused together. And so if we miss the history-bending, time-bending, wisdom-bending word of Christ, I'm afraid we miss the manner in which we are to be a part of this creating, redeeming activity of God and Christ. The word of the cross 
is an eternal fact about God, about history, about the origin of meaning. It is the touchstone, the interpretive lens, which human meaning by which it is constituted and apprehended. Here is an alternative meaning. Here is the significance, the signification of God for us. Here is the identity of persons, the meaning of history, and at the same time, an exposure of the lie, an exposure of failed language. And this is not a top-down significance in which the being of God, you know, in some way extrinsically determines the meaning of the world, but it is an incarnate significance. We understand the significance of creation based on the incarnation in which Christ is the divine center of a cosmic incorporation. The world, the cosmos, is being caught up into the divine through Christ. And so it is the world that is brought into one with God. And not an effect simply in the mind of God. The death-centered violence of the world is defeated. The lying language of Satan is overcome. It's defeated in the true word, the word of the cross, the word of Christ. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.